Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode covers the uh, events that happen in the episode, not in the town of Twin Peaks, so outside of it. Uh, there's obviously several different locations in parts one and two, covering both of them together, that uh, fit that bill. So let's get right into it. Now let's look at the different stories that are dealt with in this episode. To start with, we have New York. In New York, a college student named Sam is staring at a glass box. There's a bunch of cameras aimed at it. Every now and then he gets a reminder. He stands up. He changes the tapes. And a young woman named Tracy visits him. She brings him coffee. And she wants to go in and see what he's doing. And he says, I can't let you do that. The following night, she comes back. And at this point, the guard is gone. So he says, oh, okay, you can come in. They sit there. They stare at the empty glass box, uh, which, by the way, opens out. Uh, into a hole that opens out to the city. So there's this sort of port. It, it's sort of some sort of portal. And Sam and Tracy begin making out. As they're making out, the glass box fills with a kind of black smoke, and then a creature appears inside it. It's listed in the credits as the experiment. And we'll talk more about that later. But this creature bangs at the glass, breaks through, and attacks the two characters and, and you know, seems to kill them. There's blood everywhere. Later on, we see this uh, location again when Cooper floats into the glass box after he's been sort of expelled from the from the Black Lodge. And uh, at this moment, we cut to Sam and Tracy talking in the other room. We realize, oh, Cooper is coming into this glass box during the time that they were both out in that hallway, out in that reception area. Now, it's very strange to see New York in Twin Peaks. It's It's not a location we thought we'd ever seen. And in fact... I'm fairly certain that there has never been a David Lynch feature film or, you know, extended TV series, any Lynch uh, long form work that uh, featured New York. I can't think of a single example of this. Uh, it's, it's pretty much a new location to him. There are some commercials he made that have New York in it. In fact, he did a promo for New York in the uh, early 90s around the time Twin Peaks ended where it's a bunch of rats you know, <laughs> moving everywhere. And he's got some interesting anecdotes about visiting his grandparents in New York and feeling a lot of anxiety as he felt the subway coming and the wind sort of rose in the subway tunnel. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of his formative urban anxiety uh, experiences. But really his urban anxiety uh, has to do with Philadelphia. That's where he lived when he was an art student. He also lived in Boston before that. Um, he went to Washington, D.C. a lot because he lived nearby in Virginia. And of course, eventually he lived in Los Angeles and he shot a bunch of films there. New York just doesn't really feature in the Lynchverse. So seeing it here was pretty far out. And for me, it was personally pretty trippy because I was in New York and I was visiting a friend in Brooklyn who lived in a very tall building in Brooklyn. I think it might be actually the tallest building in Brooklyn and had an apartment fairly far up. So I'm looking out over the entire city, staring at his pretty gigantic uh, flat screen TV, as I recall, much, much bigger than anything I've had. And uh, so I'm watching basically a huge glass box in, in a high rise apartment as these characters stare at a glass box in a high rise apartment. So it was very, very surreal. Like the last thing I expected to see watching this series. So that was a lot of fun to have that personal experience. A lot of people commented that Lynch makes New York look different than anyone has seen it. And I'm not sure what it is that does that. I, I don't think this is a CGI cityscape. I, I believe it's real kind of drone footage or something. 
I think it might be with the color grading. There's just something about the the texture of the image that is really striking and beautiful. Like, I, I just love how he does it. Now, I know the shot that zooms in on this particular building, I think that is uh, CGI. But these other shots, you know, just of, you know, the New York skyline, which, as people have pointed out, we've seen a million times before, it feels different and very vivid so i i love that and I, I still can't put my finger on i'd love to hear from people what they think might might achieve that inside of the room where sam and tracy are sitting there's a kind of a fascinating texture there as well because you have this super sleek high-tech glass box you know steel glass these cameras pointing at it but it's against a very old worn brick wall this is an old building uh, i believe it was featured like men in black or something uh it's you know i'm pretty sure this is a real building uh, in new york that has like no windows and it's just you know, very striking for that reason this interior location this this brick arch reminded me of a quote from Carl Jung from his memoirs, a dream that he had that I've always found really fascinating. So I'm going to read that whole excerpt. This is sampled on my blog and I'll, I'll post the link below in the description so that you can check it out if you want. I titled it Back and Back and Back, which was a reference to the book The Giver by Lois Lowry. Here's the quote from Jung. This was the dream. I was in a house I did not know, which had two stories. It was my house. I found myself in the upper story, where there was a kind of salon furnished with fine old pieces in Rococo style. On the walls hung a number of precious old paintings. I wondered that this should be my house, and thought, not bad. But then it occurred to me that I did not know what the lower floor looked like. Descending the stairs, I reached the ground floor. There everything was much older and I realized that this part of the house must date from about the 15th or 16th century. The furnishings were medieval. The floors were of red brick. Everywhere it was rather dark. I went from one room to another thinking, now I really must explore the whole house. I came upon a heavy door and opened it. Beyond it, I discovered a stone stairway that led down into the cellar. Descending again, I found myself in a beautifully vaulted room, which looked exceedingly ancient. Examining the walls, I discovered layers of brick among the ordinary stone blocks, and chips of brick in the mortar. As soon as I saw this, I knew that the walls dated from Roman times. My interest by now was intense. I looked more closely at the floor. It was of stone slabs, and in one of these I discovered a ring. When I pulled it, the stone slab lifted, and again I saw a stairway of narrow stone steps leading down into the depths. These too I descended, and entered a low cave cut into the rock. Thick dust lay on the floor, and in the dust were scattered bones and broken pottery, like remains of a primitive culture. I discovered two human skulls, obviously very old and half-disintegrated. Then I awoke. It was plain to me that the house represented a kind of image of the psyche, that is to say, of my then state of consciousness, with hitherto unconscious additions. Consciousness was represented by the salon. It had an inhabited atmosphere in spite of its antiquated style. The ground floor stood for the first level of the unconscious. The deeper I went, the more alien and the darker the scene became. In the cave, I discovered remains of a primitive culture, that is, the world of the primitive man within myself, a world which can scarcely be reached or illuminated by consciousness. 
The primitive psyche of man borders on the life of the animal soul, just as the caves of prehistoric times were usually inhabited by animals before men laid claim to them. So I find that kind of fascinating, particularly the Roman basement with the brick. That's, I think, the image that this evoked. But really, this whole idea of sort of descending into these different levels of consciousness and using physical locations as metaphors for consciousness certainly resonates with Lynch. I think that that almost goes without saying. It's interesting in in this scene, I don't think he really spends a lot of time building the space. Maybe that's debatable. Maybe he does. But really, I feel like it's a lot of shots of Sam staring at the box, the box itself. And really, he's not so much interested in creating a space as creating a feeling through the space. And that's not just a visual matter, that's an audio-visual thing. There's a very distinctive ambiance to this, and really to all of the scenes in, this, in, this, uh, in these episodes. That does as much as anything you see to kind of pull you into this world and, and immerse you in it in a really... It, it, it's like a really saturated feeling in a way. That's the best way I can describe it. And I, this was actually distinct from watching it on streaming or even on a HDTV Watching it on the Blu-ray, everything felt like uh, perfectly pitched in a way that it hadn't when I just watched it on television. So these sequences, these two scenes with Sam and Tracy, they also feel the most controlled and masterful in an almost sort of cinematic way. Some of the other scenes, like the one set in Twin Peaks, they feel sort of fragmented, um, almost. They're fun, but they're, you know, a little throwaway in a way. But these feel like the work of like a great film director kind of creating a small film you know short film i shouldn't say small because it does it, it it feels larger than life in a lot of ways another comparison i can make is it's like a musician playing a new piece that's familiar in tonality but fresh in detail so you know that it's this particular artist but they're doing something they've never done before watching the sam and tracy sequences just everything falls into place perfectly it feels like the invention of something iconic it feels like watching the red room for the first time or watching them unwrap Laura's body on the beach and just seeing this iconography emerge that you know is going to be legendary, but you're seeing it for the first time. And it's such a great experience to have that. Another storyline beyond Twin Peaks and New York is South Dakota. We deal with the Hastings case. And in this uh, plot line, Marjorie, this woman living in an apartment in Buckhorn, South Dakota, she discovers an odor coming from her neighbor's apartment. She calls the cops. They kind of futz around, try to find a key to the place. There's a whole long extended, you know, particularly Lynchian, uh, frustrated scene where they're trying to get in touch with the maintenance man. And then he's really confused and everybody's just looking at each other. And then finally they get inside and they find that Ruth Davenport's head is lying in her bed on top of a mysterious body. The police do some work on this, on the fingerprints, and they discover that they belong to the high school principal in the area, uh, Bill Hastings, and they go to his house. They arrest him. Detective Mackley, who is uh, kind of the lead investigator on this and is friends with Hastings, interrogates him. And the poor guy just breaks down when he hears about what happened to Ruth. We know that he had some sort of involvement with her death, but we don't know what yet. And it actually plays a lot like a sort of a Leland Bob or a Fred Madison in Lost Highway situation where this character just seems like they're kind of hiding something and like they're hiding it from themselves, but it's poking through at the seams and the edges. So they put Hastings in his jail cell. They go to his house and find a piece of flesh in his car. And then his wife visits him and taunts him. And we find out she knew he was having an affair with, with Ruth, the dead woman. And he knows she was having an affair. And uh, then he's just sort of 
crying in his cell and we pan over and there's a creepy blackened figure with bright white eyes whose head floats away. <laughs> One of the earliest examples of Twin Peaks, the returns penchant for uh, really cheesy effects that are, don't even try to be convincing in some, you know, physically plausible way. I think the head is there and then another head just like imposes itself on it and floats into the air. It's it's actually kind of funny. Phyllis Hastings tells uh, George, Hastings' lawyer, that uh, he knows about their affair. And then Phyllis goes home and she's killed by Mr. C, who we'll talk about in a moment. So there's a lot of cool stuff with this uh, storyline. For one thing, the hallway is very, like, very reminiscent of The Shining, which, uh, you know, Kubrick is obviously a director that Lynch admires a lot. And I think The Shining is probably the work that feels the most referenced. Going back to the old Twin Peaks, he loves these shots through hallways of the camera kind of moving, gliding through it, like through the Overlook Hotel. In this one, the camera doesn't move, but even just the shot down that hallway evokes that. Lynch really relishes digging into these little corners of the world. I think he's kind of liberated in a way from not having to stay within the location of Twin Peaks. And uh, even though, of course, on the old show, when Twin Peaks, he'd like to do this too. But you really see it in the new series, and you really see it in this episode, where he's just digging into these obscure, uh, far-flung corners of the Twin Peaks universe and having fun with that. You know, Hank, the maintenance man's whole bizarre tirade about, oh, I know this person, you know this person, you're trying to arrest me for that? And then he calls somebody on the phone and is telling them, you know, all this stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And uh, this little glimpse reminds me of an anecdote that Lynch likes to tell, which I think Andreas Halskov has quoted a lot. This idea of looking in through a window and seeing somebody walk through with a knife and you go, oh my God, are they killing someone or are they just cutting something in the kitchen? You don't know. And it's the not knowing that's fascinating. You know, this whole idea of not solving the mystery. A lot of these minor characters actually have tons of screen time in this episode if, if you rank them we'll discuss that in a moment you see that almost none of the old characters are in the top 10 of this episode so it's kind of funny that way the interrogation scene of uh bill hastings the actor who's who's playing him god i'm having a brain freeze i'm not gonna look it up but the actor from scream and scooby-doo he's just got these incredible ticks where he kind of grimaces and uh you know hesitates and says something and makes an awkward expression and then kind of retracts it and it's just so much fun to watch and it's even more fun in a way when he's even though that scene's my favorite i also like the scene where his wife comes and visits him and they're pushing their faces into each other back and forth it's very funny the last scene of part one if you if you treat these as two separate episodes is the scene where they discover the lump of flesh in bill hastings car and i was just it just struck me this time watching it that scene, it feels like if you're watching that, you're like, did I tune into the wrong show? Like, how is this Twin Peaks? Just everything about it. I don't know. The procedural manner, the location, the actors, the characters who have nothing to do with anything we've seen in Twin Peaks before. It's just really striking how the first half of this two-hour premiere, the, the part one, is very stubbornly like anti-Twin Peaks. And that's, of course, something Lynch and Frost have always done, you know, particularly Lynch, but you know, a lot of the collaborations between them too. The season two premiere does this. Uh, the film Firewalk With Me does it. Uh, they just would do this over and over. Also, uh, just one last note on this, uh, the South Dakota stuff. You know, it's it, it feels so away from Twin Peaks, like it's conventional with a slight skew to it. And I think the figure of Mackley, the detective, 
is the perfect representative of that. He's very much like a straight character compared to so many other Twin Peaks characters. He's got nothing particularly quirky or eccentric about him. But he does have kind of an offbeat, everyman quality. I, I love the way he's, he delivers certain lines. Like, she's had a really rough day, I believe. You know, he just throws in these little expressions here and there, which feels very Lynchian. The next storyline that we're going to talk about is Mr. C, the evil doppelganger of Cooper. We meet him when he visits a cabin in the woods somewhere in, I guess, South Dakota, probably. He meets Otis and Beulah, these sort of hillbilly crime lords, which I just love, you know. Here's another example of Lynch grafting this whole evocative uh, world and just giving us a glimpse of it, you know, not telling us really what's going on. He gets Ray and Daria, his two associates from them. And then the next time we see Mr. C is in the second half, the part two, where he uh, is in Phyllis's home. She seems to recognize him, so which suggests maybe he was the lover that she... Uh, you know Hastings spoke about when he said I know there was other people too and he says you follow human nature perfectly and shoots her in the eye kills her and then we see him in a diner talking about Hastings secretary and trying to reach her with a Ray and Darian there's a tension between him and Ray they just seem to be picking at each other and uh, Mr. C has this line about uh, you know what I want and what I need Uh, he says I don't need anything I want this and that reminds us if we're you know, kind of follow the thread. And this is something a lot of other podcasts have pointed out before me. It's a little bit of a callback to something Cooper, the good Cooper, said to Audrey way back in season one when he said, you know, what I want and what I need are two different things. So that's kind of fun. Mr. C ends up uh, going on just a killing spree, basically. He kills Jack, one of his associates. Then he kills Daria very brutally. It's one of the most sort of disturbing sequences in The Return. And he finds out Ray has been arrested and uh, put into prison in another corner of South Dakota. And so he goes on his laptop and he looks up Yankton Federal Prison, gets some information about it. It seems like he's formulating a plan there. He also communicates supposedly with Philip Jeffries, you know, the David Bowie character, but it's got a different voice. And it's hard to say exactly who that is. That's something we'll return to as well. And finally, Mr. C talks to Chantel, one of his uh, criminal associates, and also it seems some sort of lover. He tells her they're going to meet again in a few days. Everything with Mr. C seems to have very cold feel to it. His car that he drives up is very shiny and sleek and sterile. It's interesting, even the parts of this uh, story, and it really, the whole the episode as a whole, even the, even the locations that have more organic textures and brighter colors, like, for example, the cabin that Mr. C walks into, they still feel kind of cold and austere in some, in some way. In that cabin, when Darian and Ray kind of pop out from the back, I remember watching it at the time and feeling like they were almost like manufactured for Cooper. But it feels like Cooper came here and was like, I would like to request two criminal associates, please. And they like put a coin in a machine and Darian Ray popped out and there they are. You know, it's kind of funny in that sense. By the way, I think that this is the only time, if I'm not mistaken, the only time in the entire series that the doppelganger is called Mr. C. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. And it's just funny that that name has caught on. I think that's the most popular name for the doppelganger. And it's only said once by Otis. The biggest question, which I think we'll return to a lot on this rewatch, is what is Mr. C doing? Why is he doing this? The next storyline is Las Vegas. We don't see too much of that yet. We meet Duncan Todd, this ominous figure who hires somebody, says give her some money. And then his assistant asks, why, why do you work for this horrible person? He says, never 
never work with somebody like this. You know, it's it's this whole ominous, unsettling scene, especially on the first viewing when you have no idea where it's leading and you recognize the actor as the guy who saw uh, the creature behind the Winky's Diner in Mulholland Drive. This scene is actually the perfect example of a Mulholland Drive sort of enigmatic vibe where you get a throwaway scene with a character in a situation that's just all about creating mood. By the way, uh, Patrick Fishler, for some reason, he just really looks like a ventriloquist dummy in this scene. The suit that they've got him in and the expressions he makes makes it both funny and very creepy. Here are some returning storylines that uh, relate to the out of Twin Peaks places, even though they obviously emerged in Twin Peaks. From the Cooper, Annie, and the Lodge storyline that coalesces in the season two finale, we basically have the doppelganger, which becomes this entire story section of Mr. C. So uh, that is... A returning storyline from the original series which morphs into basically a new storyline in season three not merges with it but literally just becomes that new storyline the mr c storyline emerging from what happened what was really the most important thread at the end of the original series also philip jeffries the storyline introduced in firewalk with me the missing pieces i guess you could say continues straight into season three with this conversation Mr. C has with somebody who maybe Jeffries, not sure. That's it for today's episode. Tomorrow I will be publishing the uh, next part of the story recap and reflections on what does take place inside of Twin Peaks. So we'll see you then. If you want to support this show and all my other work, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. And please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, best way to promote it.